0: Hello, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Wonderful to see all these little postage postage stamps in front of me. They're all beautiful. Today's talk entitled No Precepts. No rule is our rule. That's very provocative title. Since we are practicing precepts, seven of you will be receiving precepts. So what does it mean to say no precepts? In true Zen fashion, Just as we say, for example, self is no self. And for example, a seed only becomes a seed, truly fulfilling its nature by not being a seed, by being a plant, right? So, In a way, the fullness of a seed is not being a seed. And the fullness of precepts is not being precepts because precepts are just concepts, right? We recited the precepts and they are constructions. They are constructions, mental constructions formulated in words. So to be fully precepts is not to be precepts but to be actions in the world. So precepts are not precepts. They don't have any independent Existence. They are not divinely ordained. They are humanly constructed. They are concepts that are designed to be disregarded in a way in favor of actions. So we could think of them as norms rather than as commandments or rules. They're not rules, they're, they're kind of reminders. They're norms of how to live a harmonious and fully realized life. And there are other kinds of norms, as as we discussed early on in our precept talks. There are lots of different kinds of codes and norms and rules. And the Buddhist precepts are just one. There's nothing um, absolute about these precepts just as they were created by Buddha over 2,600 years ago, they were created as guidelines for a community to live in harmony and peace together. And we see this today, for example, when we we can say we have a constitution in our country, we have a constitution But we live by norms. And we can see how fragile those norms are. The constitution itself doesn't bear upon our everyday life but the norms do. And the norms can be broken and be very disruptive. So our precepts are more like norms. They are based, you could say, on the constitution of Buddhism, which is all the, the teachings, but they reflect those teachings in our everyday life. Early on in Buddha's Sangha, there were 250 precepts having to do with the daily life of the monastic community. Today, if we were acting in the spirit of that time, one of the precepts would be, wear a mask. That that would be a precept. Social, physical distance a precept. So the precepts come alive in our everyday life. They're actually not that effective in the moment of having to make a decision about what to do. They, as I've described them in different ways, they're kind of like a little crystal in your pocket that you carry around, but the crystal doesn't really help you in the moment. You have to be totally present to the causes and conditions right in front of you. The precepts are actually much more effective before you act and after you act. And I want to give you an, an example that I experienced last week. I'm calling it the pickle precept. And so much of my practice gets tested in the supermarket, in Wegmans in particular. Some of you don't know Wegmans, but it's a supermarket. And I was in a real rush. It was very crowded. The weather was not good. And I was in a rush to get home. And I needed a couple of items. Um, So I chose the small cart and picked up the items that I needed. And because I was in a hurry, I went to the self-checkout and put my items in the bag and tootled off to the parking lot and began to unpack my, my items from the cart into my car. When I noticed that in the little basket that actually presses up against your body, there was a jar of pickles that I hadn't paid for. I didn't, I didn't even know it was there until I started taking the things out of the basket. And there it was, I didn't pay for it. Well, of course my immediate reaction was, I, I probably should go back and go to the surface counter and tell the woman behind the counter that I had not paid for this and gotten this amazing response like, oh, you're so honest. You know, thank you for coming back in. I really appreciate that. That's so unusual that you would do that. And I would get all this good good vibration from doing this remarkable thing that most people wouldn't do. But I didn't do that. I just put the pickles in my trunk and uh, rode home. And of course, all the way home, I was thinking, hmm, this is not something I should admit to anyone, least of all, Sangha. And the precept certainly got kicked in at that moment that I was in fact taking what was not given. That is, I was stealing. Let's just put it bluntly. I was stealing something, not deliberately, but nonetheless, when I made the decision not to go back in, then I was stealing. Then I was stealing. So the precept began to take effect at the moment after I acted to put the pickles in my trunk. What I noticed, and this is why I say, I'm I'm passing these confessions onto you as teachings because they're teachings to me. I noticed that there was a moment of blindness when I decided to put the pickles in my trunk. The the impulse to take the pickles back and pay for them was there, but then it's sort of like I blanked out. And just put the pickles in my trunk. Like I didn't want to, I didn't want to investigate that anymore. That's one of the three poisons that interferes with our full realization. And what is that poison? It's ignorance. At that moment, I decided to be ignorant. <laughs> I'm not looking at this. I'm shutting down, put the pickles in, that's it, go. That's a blind spot. And I have noticed that that blind spot occurs quite frequently when we know we're doing something that will cause harm or cause suffering or somehow doesn't feel right. Like the first cigarette, I remember taking my first cigarette (laughs) and it was like, (laughs) it was horrible, but everybody was smoking. So I just grit my teeth and continued to smoke. It was like a blind spot. I wasn't paying attention to the reaction that was telling me, no, don't do this. I just, nope, I'm not paying any attention. I'm just doing it. So that was decision one that I was gonna steal. But then decision two was, I'm going to talk about this during my Dharma talk on Sunday. And one of the teachings that I could pass on to our sangha is that I was so honest that I returned. I went to the to the customer service and I did pay for the pickles to show the sangha how the precepts work. That I I went back and I I did that and. Look how wonderful I am. But that would have been lying. (laughs) So I would have not observed another precept (laughs) which was don't lie. So the, the moment came when I decided, well, I may have not observed the precept of no stealing, but I'm going to make an effort to observe the precept of telling the truth, <laughs> even though it's painful. And the Sangha may feel, Ugh, she is, She's a bad person. So it feels good to have at least learned from not observing the the precept of stealing, not stealing, to at least have observed the precept of not lying when the inclination was definitely to lie and show what a good per- person i am so if we don't if we don't actually practice the precept in the moment of the decision and even the moment of decision to tell the truth didn't exactly happen because i was obeying a precept it was just that I didn't want to lie to you. I just valued you, the Sangha. So what is, <clears throat> what is the best way to practice the precepts if it isn't in the moment of decision? The best way to practice the precepts is to meditate. The best way to practice the precepts is to to, to do zazen, to practice being in the present moment, to practice being fully attentive to being with what is so that you don't blank out and that you can get in touch with what feels truly human and truly right. The best way to practice the precepts is to turn inward and to come Into full presence with yourself and with your circumstances. So I'm very fond of a story that is Carl Jung's, the famous, famous psychiatrist and psychiatrist and psychotherapist. Carl Jung, I've told it before and it's the story of the Rainmaker. This is a story that Carl Jung felt was so significant and so important that he instructed everyone who ever gave a lecture on him or on his approach to therapy that they include this story in their talk. There once was a town in Japan, a province, which was experiencing a terrible drought. Animals were dying. Vegetation was shriveling up. People were starving for lack of rain. And the people of the town had religious commitments and they said, they, the, the Catholics were praying, the Protestants were, were um, having uh, processions, uh, Chinese were lighting joss sticks and incense. They were, uh, they, they were engaging in all kinds of rituals to try to make rain. the rain didn't come. So one of the um, governors of the town suggested that he knew a man called the Rainmaker, who lived in another province, who is famous for his magical capacity to bring rain. And so the townspeople said, yep, okay, let's, let's bring him on. And they did invite him. They had a big ceremony inviting the rainmaker. And the rainmaker spent a little bit of time assessing the town, talking to the townspeople, and then said, I have one request what is your request my request is that you find me a little cottage not in the town but right adjacent to the province a little quiet cottage in the mountains where i can spend a few days and they said of course certainly and they sent him off to a an isolated spot in the mountains where he could be alone in this little cottage. And three days passed and on the fourth day, the rains started falling. Nourishing the land, nourishing the plants, the animals. And the people in the town were just ecstatic. And they brought the Rainmaker down out of his cottage and wanted to celebrate him and give him all kinds of gifts. And one of the people asked him, you know, this is pretty amazing. How did you do it? And the Rainmaker said, I didn't do anything. I, I didn't make the rain fall. All I did was notice that your province was somehow out of balance. And because I was part of that part of it for a while, I became also feeling out of balance. And I needed to get back into balance. I needed to reconnect with myself. And once I reconnected with myself, everything just seemed to go (laughs) as it should go. Everything naturally flowed the way it was meant to flow. So all I did was get back in tune and then everything was just the way it naturally should be. So I was very curious always about why this story was so significant to Carl Jung. And it's becoming more and more clear to me, why? Because the world follows naturally from your inner life. And if you are in tune, if you are in harmony with all things, if you are in a state of openness, receptivity, and attentiveness, all things will flow as they should. And you won't suffer with drought. Or famine, or all the disasters that we think come upon us from the outside. All the disasters come from here. That seems a little bit anti intuitive because. We don't have any control over the rain or the snow or the hail or the the weather or the things that happen to us, that happen to us in life. But we can return to our inner life and be with all as the natural flow up and down, up and down, crashing and recovering seven times down, eight times up, and just be with it all. And only because we find within ourselves the capacity to return the pickles, and not say anything about it, not not brag about it or not not tell the sangha about it, but just do it. Like Domenica the other day just picked up the picked up the soda bottle in the woods without making a big deal of it. Just doing what was natural just was seemed the natural thing to do. So when you give birth, when you give birth to the precepts, whatever they are for you, you won't fail to observe them. (laughs) There won't be any sense of, oh, I did the wrong thing or whatever, happens will be the right thing. If you are giving birth, you are giving birth to your precepts. The precepts only have meaning as they come from you, not as they are imposed from the outside. So let's find our precepts every moment that's when they function. One of the ways that, for example, Thich Nhat Hanh suggests that we practice with these personal precepts is by creating what he calls these little gathas, uh, and when I practiced at retreats with him, and even at Jikoji where I practice in California, the place is dotted with these little gathas, these little sayings. Some people use what they call affirmations. Actually, <laughs> there, there was a time when on my computer <clears throat> or my telephone, I would actually have not an affirmation but a negation, and I would have the word no there. (laughs) But a lot—I mean, for me, that was an affirmation to be able to say no. (laughs) But but there are these little gothas all over the place, and um, I created my own, which you can post. You can create your own. There are hundreds of them if you, you go online and you can find all these gathas. So, breathing in, I open the can of cat food. Breathing out, I discover the smell of fish. Breathing in, I scoop out a cupful of cat food. Breathing out, I nourish all beings. This is one from Thich Nhat Hanh. I mean, you don't have to actually write these out, but it, it is helpful. Brushing my teeth and rinsing my mouth, I vow to speak purely and lovingly When my mouth is fragrant with right speech, a flower blossoms in the garden of my heart. Before starting the car, I know where I am going. The car and I are one. If the car goes fast, I go fast. If I go fast, I miss seeing each thing. Now, this can be done for, like I did one, not not in words, but I was cutting pineapple, cutting a pineapple up for my smoothie. And I realized that I hate cutting up a whole pineapple, shouldn't word, use the word hate, but it really irritates me. I just want to get it over with because it's, it's, it's just an irritating process. Um, and I realized that I was just cutting and cutting and cutting and not just wanting to get through with it. And I thought to myself, Is cutting a pineapple unworthy of my attention? (laughs) Is taking out the garbage unworthy of my attention? Is anything I do unworthy of my attention? And the answer is no, there is nothing that you see, hear, smell, taste, touch, or do that is unworthy of your attention. This is the basis for the precepts. When you pay attention, you will know what is the skillful thing to do and what isn't, if you pay attention. And that's what our practice is about. When you pay attention, you'll see deeply and you'll know what to do. And if things don't work out and you create suffering, pay attention again. (laughs) And again.